Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a guest that has done it not once but six times. I mean, imagine the wealth of knowledge and the insights that we're gonna be really getting from the conversation today. He's built it, he's scaled them, he's exited them, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alan Han. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Do really appreciate being uh uh, having the opportunity to talk to you today, very excited about uh, filling people in on uh, you know what I've done in the uh, six startups I've been a part of. So originally, to do a walk through memory lane here, so that the people that are listening, you know, get to know you. So born and raised, obviously raised, not raised in New Jersey, but you were born there and then you moved quite a bit. So tell us about that. Yeah, so you know, obviously born in New Jersey. Uh, and my dad was in the textile industry, a chemist. He went to Brown University. So it's funny. We always had a lab in our house with lots of fun things for me to play with. And, uh, and we ended up moving to the South for cheaper labor uh, for the textile industry. And then, of course, it ended up moving to, uh, to China. Uh, but uh, it ended up being in Georgia and Tennessee and, and really spent my teenage years in Nashville, uh, college years in Knoxville, and original uh, first 15 years in business in Atlanta. And how, how do you land in Atlanta? Uh, it's, a, it's a short drive from Knoxville. It's, uh, it, it, was, it was really interesting as uh, the company I worked for uh, uh, shut down the, um, the location in uh, Knoxville, where I where I lived, and I went home to tell my wife that hey, I've been laid off, and she said, "Well, how about that? I've been laid off on the same day." So we wow. picked a city that we wanted to move to. Uh, went and uh, uh, I went down to Atlanta. It was a city of choice, and uh, did some interviews and got a job offer, and uh, moved there two weeks later. Wow. And obviously, you ended up there, and this is your first exposure to to startups. And uh, I believe you were there, a co-founder and the employee number one of a company called Share Technologies Fairchild. Tell us about this. Yeah, it, it was a really interesting time. When I first got to Atlanta, 
I, I found telecommunications and really fell in love with it. It was the time of deregulation. Uh, most people don't know unless you were around at that time that it was illegal to sell a phone or a phone system. You had to rent it from the phone company. So the laws changed. You could start selling it. I, I got uh, uh, into selling um, telecommunications equipment back then. And then there was a, an opportunity to join a startup, which I didn't really think about it as a startup, just a small company uh, that had a, that was developing a whole different approach to telecommunication than was traditionally being done at the time. So then, I mean, the business model here, essentially, like what, what was the business model of this business here? Well, it's, it's interesting, as with uh, most startups, uh, you, you kind of pivot once you learn more about where the market really is. Because when I went in there, I had come from selling phone systems. And what we were doing, as the name says, Shared Technologies Fairchild, it was sharing one giant phone system in high-rise buildings and renting phones off of that system. Uh, to the tenants that included local service, long distance, and in-house support. So uh, at first I went in there and it was about competing with the people that were selling a system versus we were going to rent this. And it became a technology battle between feature function. And then I realized pretty quickly my advantage wasn't technology, my advantage was financial. And so I turned it into a financial sale and showing the CEO or CFO or COO that I was working with that we could save them money over a three or five year period of time, depending on how they wanted to look at it. And once we, I figured out how to do that, it became kind of a rinse and repeat process that drove us from zero revenue to $200 million a year in revenue and very profitable. And obviously, I mean, here we're talking about a company that raised $40 million and that had quite a substantial exit. What was the exit? Yeah, the exit was a $1.1 billion exit. Uh, so everybody was uh, very happy uh, upon the exit, as you can imagine. And uh, so, you know, that was uh, my first startup. And, uh, you know, uh, I think... Uh, Everybody would love to have an experience like that. It was, uh, you know, a 12-year run that was just, uh, uh, you know, it had challenging points, but it was just amazing to experience that kind of growth and uh, and to be part of a company that really what, what happens as you start growing that rapidly, the processes you have in place break. And then you realize you really want your processes to break because it's, it's a really good sign that you're growing really rapidly and that you what you designed and designed for growth uh, needed to be readdressed and looked at and reevaluated to, to take you to that next level of growth. And obviously, when we're talking about growth, I'm sure that you grew quite a, a bit personally and professionally to yourself. No, So I guess... What yeah. is that one lesson that you took away, you know, with you from, from this journey? Well, you know, uh, my mentor at the time, uh, uh, Mel Borer, who is our CEO, uh, was really about learning to run the business by the numbers. So we ended up having locations in 33 cities. We call them the NFL cities across the U.S. And he really taught me to analyze P&Ls 
and and really look at the numbers hard and cold and really make adjustments and changes based on the financials and and that was a really good lesson to to learn at a young age got it and then after this uh, this exit you moved to southern california and there you got exposed to the world of hyper growth tech enabled startups and this led you to your next company corvigo so what were you guys doing at corvigo Corvigo became the gold standard of anti-spam, antivirus appliance. Uh, it, it, it used uh, artificial intelligence, so one of the very first uh, products out there is that it was using AI, and it would read an email and understand the intent of the email and uh, to decide whether it was spam or not. Uh, it was uh, funded by Sequoia Capital. And that really got my first exposure to Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road and starting to get to understand the venture capitalists there. And that ended up being the fastest flip in Sequoia history. It was $5 million in, $42 million out in six months. Wow. And what do you think, uh, may, what, what, what do you think was the driver or, or why do you think that actually happened? The reason it happened is we had superior technology, but understanding the real difference between our technology and others that were out there, because there were other products out there that were much less expensive, that did a pretty good job, uh, but and we, you would get evaluated two or three solutions uh, against every company you were you were uh, talking to. But in order to get evaluated, you really had to stand out. So you had to figure out what is different about your technology. And the AI was different. And so we got to be compared to everybody uh, that was out there looking at it. And so we could sell them on the benefits of AI and to be able to interpret the intent of the email. And that made all the difference in the world. And I think that moment really solidified something I learned in my first startup, which was ch uh, changing a technical sale to a financial sale. And that got us an amazing close ratio of opportunities. And when I saw it again happen at Corvigo, where the AI was the was the key selling point that got us into so many opportunities that you have to think about every every startup that you have, the value that you bring, what is the key tool that you can develop from that knowledge that you have or that advantage you have in the marketplace to turn that into your selling tool. Because every startup needs that selling tool. Wow. I mean, almost a 10x return for Sequoia in six months. I mean, not, not bad at all. And, and you were pointing to the fact that this was your first exposure to, to VCs. So I guess, you know, and, and going back to like recapping in one lesson, I guess, what did you learn from, from working closely with, with VCs and especially with, with a VC like Sequoia, which is, you know, in my mind, if not the best, one of the best uh, VCs in the world. Oh, they're great. Um, you know, really, it comes down to, you know, what, you know, what a VC wants is they want to get to know people. They invest in people before they invest in products or companies. And, you know, it's all about integrity 
and delivering on what you promise. And, and that was the key because when we sold Corvigo, they invited me in to look at the portfolio companies they thought I would be a fit for. And I looked at eight companies and, uh, and, and chose uh, LogLogic as, uh, as my next company to participate in. So then let's talk about LogLogic. So obviously LogLogic, another nice exit there. So what were you guys doing at LogLogic? Well, we created this, the whole field of um, log management. So computers, VPNs, routers, and so forth all give out data packets of information. And so it creates this log management, and it's a bunch of uh, unreadable zeros and ones that to take any action off that information required a tremendous amount of analysis that would take your best person months to figure out what happened. Did somebody hack into this computer or into this server or what was the incident that happened to get down to root cause? It was virtually impossible to uh, take action on it. So we developed uh, an appliance that would capture all this data, parse it very rapidly, uh, set off uh, alerts and alarms uh, in order for you to take action. Back to what I said before, but what was the key tool to give us that advantage in the marketplace to really sell this? Because, yeah, that's good. And people really don't want to spend the money on things that they don't have to until they have a problem. Then they wish they had spent it so they could have solved it. But there became SOX compliance. And so we built uh, SOX compliance tools into the appli appliance, and now everybody wanted it. Sales exploded, uh, and you know that uh, that led to our success. But again, it's all about finding that critical tool. And in this case, I mean, also quite a quite a short run. I mean, one year and and six months. I mean, it's a not a not a not a long run when you when you keep into consideration that this was a thirty three million dollar investment and a two hundred and ninety million exit. So unbelievable, Alan. Here you do it again. So what what, what happened there? Why why again uh, another short run? Yeah, I, I, I you know it's 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 interesting because you get really excited about the going in going out. You know you know getting. Uh, having success and, you know, exiting, you know, that's what Silicon Valley is all about. I mean, what's, what's cool is what you learn about Silicon Valley. It's kind of a virtual company, the entire, you know, greater Silicon Valley from San Francisco down to Campbell, you know, everybody wants to be part of a startup. Uh, you go anywhere else in the country and people want to work for bigger companies. But what's cool about the Valley is, everybody's looking for that next, you know, Google or Apple or whatever uh, to get in as early as possible and be part of that success. So it's, it's intoxicating. So then uh, for this one, for LogLogic, what was your lesson learned? My lesson learned with LogLogic uh, was, was really about how Quickly, you can find that tool that delivers the success. I knew to look for it. Um, it took it took a while to figure out. Uh, you know, in a while is 
you know, six months. Uh, and, and, and really the, the quicker you can find that key advantage selling tool, uh, the quicker you'll, you'll blow out your numbers. And, you know, you know, I consider that all happened pretty quick, but, you know, later on you start looking for that and you're trying to figure it out in weeks, not months. Got it. And then, you know, here you are, you know, close to 1.5 billion in exits. And you arrived to your next startup, SolarX, which ended up being not the desired outcome. Tell us about this experience. Yeah, for SolarX, um, I really was leveraging my experience from Shared Technologies Fairchild, uh, which was this shared tenant services. We were gonna, I was going to create a company that sold power as a service. Um, so solar panels in... Um, Class A type buildings and uh, and low rise buildings uh, and sell the power. Uh, really put together a really great team. Funded it myself. Uh, I got a letter of credit from a bank at the time to fund the largest solar project in North America. It's a two hundred forty million dollar uh, line of credit uh, for this project. And um, it uh, two weeks after I got the letter, uh, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in October of '08, and that was pretty much the end of uh, SolarX. Uh, you know, and I and the lessons learned in SolarX, besides the financial part of it, you know, the it is really about avoiding going into businesses that have too much. Uh, controlled by the government. You know, it, it was really a lot on the government subsidies on solar to bring the cost down. And without those subsidies early on, uh, it didn't make financial sense. Uh, but it just, um, it, you really don't want to get in a position where the government every year is making a decision to have a rebate or not have a rebate or in, uh, uh, incentives. Uh, and that was going to dictate how your business was going to go. So you kind of lose control uh, uh, in that respect. And then after this experience, you started scale computing. So what was scale computing about? Well, the great part about this is, so I shut down the uh, uh, SolarX company around two in the afternoon one day, two o'clock in the afternoon the next day, I get a call from my guys that I did Corvigo with and said, hey, we're putting the band back together. What are you doing? And I said, perfect timing. And we we started uh, uh, scale computing that day. Wow. And what was uh, the business model there? The business model was about creating um, cloud computing. We're leveraging cloud computing where you could have the cloud in your facility. So you would have um, uh, servers for small and medium-sized businesses that would replicate the ease of the cloud, but have the security uh, issue, a security benefit of uh, having a facilities-based equipment and really taking the work out of it, really kind of plug-and-play kind of approach. Got it. And here, obviously, you exited after having some sort of technology issues and the company is still running, but this was the segue for you to start your 
most recent company, Microtechnology. So, so tell us about Microtechnology, like how you bump into the idea, because I, I believe that the story of the founding is is quite interesting. But you know, here's your sixth startup. I mean, Alan, I mean, you you don't get tired. What's happening? I never get tired. <laughs> um, no, you know, I'm I'm highly motivated. You know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I love what I do. I love starting companies. And I and and what what was interesting how this happened about three years. So let me back up a second. I started uh, microtechnology seven years ago. So three years before that, I was diagnosed as a type two diabetic, and it really surprised me. Uh, I didn't expect that when I was diagnosed that way. Uh, and you know the the doctor on on my way out the door said, "Hey, Alan, here's how you live your life. If it tastes good, don't eat it. If it tastes bad, eat it." Slapped me on the back with a little laugh and sent me on my way. And that just sounded horrible to me that you had to trade off, you know, something you enjoy like eating and tasting good for for health. It had to taste bad. So I started taking classes uh, on nutrition. I lost 30 pounds. I got off all the diabetic medicine. I got my A1C down to 5.2. Uh, my doctor told me I'm his first patient to ever uh, follow his directions and uh, and 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 reverse diabetes um, from diet and exercise. And so, um, you know, it it really has worked for me and in, in understanding, you know, what you consume has an impact on your health. So when I got a call from a buddy of mine, Pete Lubar, and we had done two startups together, the last one he was at Scale Computing as well. And he said that um, um, his nephew is a scientist who met another scientist, and he's thinking about investing in their company and wanted to know if I would come to Denver and uh, evaluate this company. And I said, sure, what kind of high-tech company is it? And he said, it's a mushroom technology company. And I said, no, 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 really, what kind of company is it? And he's like, no, it's a mushroom technology company. And I go, well, I got to come to Denver to see that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I get to Denver and I meet the two scientists. And, you know, this is the great part of, of a startup. You know, Silicon Valley is all about starting in the garage. Well, this started in a basement, so close enough. And uh, they had built a clean room out of the house that they had rented. And it had uh, fermentation hoods. They had rerouted the HVAC system in, in the house to run all through the basement. They stacked up filters from Home Depot to create kind of a HEPA filter environment. It was all put together with wood and duct tape and, and plastic. And, and, and they were fermenting these mushrooms into all kinds of different substrates. And uh, they said, would you like to try it? And so I said, sure. So they went upstairs, cooked some up, and it was the best tasting vegetarian meal I'd ever eaten. And uh, and I'm not vegetarian, so you know that was you know I had at the time kind of a negative view on vegetarian. I was like, you know, I like a lot of meat uh, in a serving. And so I looked at it through a different lens. Uh, my my lens was, wait a minute, here you can take food that has taste challenges and ferment it with mushrooms 
and get rid of these taste defects and these aroma defects without adding a bunch of sugar, salt, and fat. And so right then and there, I knew I had to be a part of this. And my wife thought I was absolutely nuts. I'm going to work, you know, going to create a company that is mushroom technology versus high tech. Uh, but now she thinks it was brilliant and glad I did it. So then what happened next? Well, um, we did a test. So uh, when I looked at what they had made, they had made a uh, served me a version of tempeh, if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, their version was excellent. And I said, well, the tempeh market's pretty small. What else can we do with this technology? And they, uh, the scientists had written a draft of a patent. So I read the patent and it talked about coffee. And so I said, what can you do with coffee? And it goes, well, I believe we can take low-grade coffee and ferment it and make it taste like a higher-grade coffee by removing bitterness. And I go, well, that's a huge market. So we got three coffee companies to give us coffee beans. We fermented it. We came back to them to do blind taste testing. And they all said the same thing, that this was the first technology they had ever seen that removed a taste defect in coffee without introducing a secondary defect. And with that, I said, I'm in. Uh, Pete and I funded the company for the first uh, six months and then started raising money. And now, seven years later, I've raised over $120 million. And I have some of the biggest names in the food industry are our investors and customers and partners. So how did you think about uh, onboarding these investors? Because obviously now, your sixth startup, I'm sure that you were very careful as to who you were bringing, you know, as part of the cap table. Yeah, and, and this was a, a, a long-term strategic plan I put together on investors because I felt pretty comfortable uh, raising money. So I knew I could get money, but not all money is the same. It's what do you get beyond the money? And it's the relationships and contacts and eventual exit. So, you know, I was very careful to choose uh, venture capitalists, family offices, uh, strategic corporate investors uh, to in, in the right mix for various reasons, for potential customers of our products, uh, the venture capitalists, you know, that's the strategic guys. The venture capitalists uh, understand that you need continual rounds of funding over time as you hit different milestones and not necessarily strategic investors understand that. So you want to have the venture guys in there and gals to, to help uh, make sure you've got uh, investors in for the A round, the B round, the C round and so forth where we've just completed our D round uh, of funding. And then um, you want potential strategic partners in there to be customers and then on a potential exit, you want you want to have people in that could possibly acquire you to create that natural friction that you want to get or that uh, IPO exit that uh, companies have got to know you over a period of time and they understand the value and understand uh, what uh, a proper exit uh, would look like. And, you know, it's interesting now because uh, it seems that, you know, you definitely went into this early. I mean, you did it, you know, before with AI, with, for example, Corvigo, and now it seems that you're doing it again, you know, with microtechnology. I mean, uh, now everyone is talking about, like, the 
the plant-based uh, proteins and, you know, the transformation of food and things like that. And here you are, you know, again, you're early, you're, you're, you're ready to ride the wave. So where do you think this, uh, this segment, this, this, this space as a whole, where do you think it's heading? Well, I am, I'm super excited about where this segment is headed. Yes, I'm, I'm very early into this. Uh, and very excited to have been early because we are positioned right. I mean, we're one of the only ones out there with a full production facility. Uh, we, we produce in thousands of metric tons of material. But what's really interesting is what's happening. And I mean, real time right now, because uh, Beyond Meat happened, uh, their IPO happened, what, a uh, year ago, May, yeah. uh, I think is when they came out. And that really got the attention of the food industry. And I think, it, and, and very much got the attention of the consumers. And the reason why is that the technology of making plants into, to look something like meat was very evident to consumers when you can go and look at a meat counter that has the Beyond Burger in it, and it looks like raw meat. You take it home and you cook it, it looks like cooked meat. And it's, it's got, you know, it tastes very similar to meat. So you don't feel from a consumer you're giving something up. And then there's the halo effect uh, of better sustainability and the assumption that it's better for you. Um, so what's happening is that technology is continuing to uh, evolve and we're taking it to the next level. So we're taking, not only are we fermenting uh, pea and rice protein to eliminate the bad taste and, and aroma, it eliminates uh, uh, the need for as much sugar, salt, and fat as is required for non-fermented uh, pea and rice protein. And so if you can create a product that is better for you and tastes great, now you've got a customer that will be with you for the long term. And where we're going is not only to make proteins taste better, plant-based proteins taste better, have better aromas, but much more functional. Uh, we just completed a study with the, uh, the University of Illinois on digestibility, and there's about a 20% improvement in digestibility due to fermentation. So it's much easier on your body to get to the amino acids that you're looking, uh, that's why you eat this stuff, uh, protein, to get to amino acids, so you can build a healthy body, and um, and then cut down on the sugar, salt, and fat that's added to, to make it taste great. Where we're going with the technology is that right now we use a lot of pea and rice, and the mycelia, the root system of the mushrooms that's used in fermentation, uh, is a small percentage. And where we want to go to is over time, we'll get to 100% of the protein is from mycelia or mushroom, the root system of mushrooms. And that will be a fundamental shift in sustainability for proteins. Rather than having to raise animals to do this or grow crops that get converted and highly processed, we can convert sugar into protein in hours of fermentation. And uh, we're super excited about that, that we could be a big contributor to how we feed an exponentially growing planet. And I uh, uh, can't wait to bring that out to the marketplace 
uh, and we expect that over the next 18 to 24 months, we'll, we'll be introducing that to the market. Very cool. Very cool. And I guess, uh, you know, throwing a question here that I typically ask the guests that come on the show. Uh, I mean, obviously, we've been talking about lessons learned. I mean, your entrepreneurial journey is, is quite extensive. Uh, but if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, with perhaps that younger Alan, uh, and I know that maybe you would have not listened, but let's say you were actually listening with that younger <laughs> self. No, and and you gave you had the opportunity to give that younger Alan one piece of advice before launching a business, before perhaps launching the first business. What would that be, and why? Knowing what you know now, Alan. Yeah, you know, I think to be a couple of things I would go back and tell myself. Uh, one, uh, the the key to success of any business is finding that that sales tool that I talked about, you know, and finding that quicker and and really spending you know the early early time trying to figure out that advantage that you bring to the marketplace. Uh, second, it's really important who you work with and uh, the integrity of these people. And, uh, you know, are these people you want to be around? I, what I really learned over time is if, if you're going to work with someone closely, you need to do, do one or two things when, when you first meet them, is have a long dinner with them or a long drive. And at the end of that, do you still want to be around that person or those people? If the answer is a question mark, run the other way. Wow. I mean, that's a, definitely an amazing piece of advice there, Alan. So uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Very profound. So I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can send me an email. It's alan, A-L-A-N, at mycotechcorp.com. That's M-Y-C-O-T-E-C-H. C-O-R-P.com. Amazing. Well, Alan, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it and really enjoyed the conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.